I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John 5, for our time of study in God's Word uh, this morning, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to John chapter 5, verse 19, and my goal uh, this morning is to uh, cover verses 19 through 30, and the title of the message this morning is Like Father, Like Son. Like Father, Like Son. Years ago, uh, when my oldest son, Brendan, was a little over uh, three years of age, I was in our backyard uh, mowing our lawn, and as I mowed, I looked behind me at one point and saw that my son, Brendan, was following me with his little plastic lawnmower. And I chuckled as I saw that and thought that it was adorable. It was a hot day, so at some point while mowing, I took my shirt off and kept mowing, and it wasn't long before I looked over at my son and noticed that he had taken his shirt off as he pushed his little plastic mower behind me. At one point, my wife brought me a glass of iced tea, and I sat down um, on our back porch to drink it, and my shirtless son sat down beside me and took a drink from his sippy cup every time I took a swig of my tea. After I was done mowing, I grabbed a pickaxe, and started chopping at a stretch of grass that I wanted eventually to replace. And as I worked that pickaxe, striking the ground with it and lifting up the grass as I did so, I heard the sounds of pounding somewhere else in the yard. And I turned and saw my son with his plastic baseball bat smacking the grass (laughs) in another section of our yard. And then I'm, I'm not quite sure how to describe this, but there was a stretch of, of grass uh, that I wanted to get yanked up before I quit for the day. I already felt tired and was ready to quit, but I went after that section, that final section with a flurry of chops with the pickaxe, and I kept chopping and lifting up the sections of grass even when my body was telling me to quit. Finally, when I got to the end of that stretch of lawn, I was so satisfied with myself that in a manly show of triumph, I victoriously threw the pickaxe aside. As soon as I did that, I had a thought go through my head that was only half half formed. The thought was, oh no, my son might imitate what I just did. But before that thought could even form itself fully in my head, I heard the whistling sound of a plastic baseball bat as it went flying about an inch from my head. (laughs) So evidently, my boy, in imitation of me, had tossed his tool aside like I had, only he threw his right at my head. Now, every one of you parents I know, moms and dads, can tell a similar story of a son or a daughter who you have found imitating you when they were young. And that's a beautiful thing, right? 
Or maybe it's not so beautiful depending on what it is that you find your children imitating. Uh, But take the good things that we as parents might do that our children would try to imitate when they are young. Take the very best of the innocence and sweetness and loving admiration that go into their desire to be like us and to imitate us and bundle all of that together. And this is what you have in Jesus' relationship with his Father. And this bundle of sweetness and love has abundant bearing on the miracle that we witnessed Jesus performing last week in John chapter 5. You will recall that Jesus healed a lame man who was lying beside the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, and he told this man to get up to pick up his pallet and to walk, and this man was miraculously, instantly healed by the Lord Jesus, and he did what Jesus said and began to walk around as a completely healed man made well by the power of the Lord Jesus. We saw last week how these actions of Jesus provoked the wrath of the religious leaders who viewed Jesus as breaking the Sabbath because Jesus had healed this man and given him his instructions on the Sabbath day. And we saw how Jesus responded to their rage By saying in verse 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Essentially, Jesus, at least in part, is saying to them, you evidently only are seeing me and what I am doing. What you're failing to see in this picture is my father and what he is doing. And you are failing to see that I have simply done what I've done in unison with him. In calling God my father, as we have seen, Jesus was making a staggering claim about himself in relation to the father, essentially claiming a very unique relationship with the father that even other Jews did not enjoy. And beyond that, Jesus is saying that whatever applies to The Father in the work that the Father does also applies to Jesus, the Son. The Father works on the Sabbath day. Everyone would agree with that as he rules over the world in his active providence. And Jesus is saying that as the Son of the Father, he is entitled to work on the Sabbath as well, just as his Father does. Well, as you can imagine, the Jewish religious leaders were beside themselves with fury over this kind of talk from Jesus. Look at verse 18, where John says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so, how does Jesus respond to their murderous rage against him for what he has said and done? Well, look at verse 19, which begins with these words. Therefore, Jesus answered 
and was saying to them, to these men who want to kill him. And the words that come out of Jesus' mouth, beginning in verse 19, are literally the most audacious words ever spoken by anyone in history. As Jesus explains more about the dynamic working relationship that he has with his father, essentially unpacking what he said in verse 17. And as for what Jesus says here, he says it with confidence and blood earnest seriousness. Three times in the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see Jesus prefacing something he says with the words, truly, truly. Everything Jesus ever said is absolutely true. But whenever he prefaces something that he says with truly, truly, he's telling his audience to pay very close attention because he's saying something that is absolutely critical, absolutely crucial to their eternal well-being. And as we study this passage and look at the words of Jesus beginning in verse 19 uh, through verse 30 this morning, we're going to observe four truths, four crucial truths that Jesus presents to his persecutors to explain how he and his father work together in all things. And the first of these truths is this. Everything the Son does, He does in tandem with and in imitation of His Father. Everything the Son does, He does in tandem with and in imitation of His Father. Observe what is said of verse 19 again. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Jesus grew up in Joseph and Mary's household, and Jesus, no doubt, growing up, knew what it was like to watch his earthly father do his work as a carpenter and then seek to imitate what he would see his earthly father doing. That's how he learned his earthly father's craft. And here in verse 19, Jesus is saying this is the way it is between him and his father in heaven. In verse 19, Jesus is essentially saying to his enemies who want to kill him, whatever you see me doing, I am simply doing what I see my father doing. And those things I see my father doing, I do them exactly the way I see my father doing them. Jesus' enemies are definitely correct to interpret Jesus' words in verse 17 as claiming equality with God, but Jesus wants them to know that His equality with the Father comes with an important nuance of submission to the Father's initiative. This is why he starts his statement 
by saying in verse 19, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees his father doing first. The opposite statement cannot be made. The father would never say, I can do nothing of myself unless it is something I see my son doing. The father would not speak this way, but this is the way Jesus, the son of the father, speaks. Yes, he is equal with the father, but in the context of that equality, Jesus happily lets the father take the lead and he happily submits himself to the father's initiative. Given the events that have preceded these words, Jesus is saying to these religious leaders in healing this man on the Sabbath and in telling this man to get up, to pick up his sleeping bag and walk, I did not act alone. I simply looked at what my father was up to and then I sought to act in the very manner that my father would have acted. I have done absolutely nothing in this situation that my father would not have done if he were in exactly this situation. In fact, in seeing what I have done and said in this situation, you are seeing a mirror reflection of what my father has said and done in this very situation. And I love how Jesus goes on to elaborate in verse 20. He's just said that he only does what he sees the father doing, but how is it that he is so privileged to see what the father is up to in any given situation? Well, listen to what he says in verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. The word translated loves here is the Greek word phileo which speaks of loving someone with a love characterized by warm affection and friendship. By his use of this particular verb, Jesus is saying that the father cherishes the son, and because he cherishes him with such deep affection, he delights to show his son everything that he is up to in any given situation. I mean, the truth is that even as Christians, we don't always know what God is up to in every situation, right? God is always doing a million things in everything that we simply cannot see. And we have to trust God with the things that we may not know fully what he is up to. But Jesus is saying here that he always knows what the father is doing because the father shows him everything. So God is always doing a million things and guess what? The father always shows Jesus the million things that he is up to. And with this privileged view of what the father is doing in all things, Jesus is seeking to imitate the Father and to mirror the Father's heart in all that he does. And the result is that whatever Jesus does, he does in tandem with the Father. It is always the two of them working. 
And this is the way things will be moving forward, Jesus is saying. In fact, speaking about what the Father shows the Son, Jesus serves notice on these religious leaders who hate him and want to kill him, saying at the end of verse 20, and the Father will show him, the Son, greater works than these so that you will marvel. Jesus is saying, if what I've done in healing this lame man on the Sabbath has bothered you, then your problems are only beginning because there are even greater works to come that my Father will be showing me to do. And the result is that you're going to be blown away. In the coming narrative of John's gospel, Jesus is going to do some amazing things. He's going to feed the 5,000 from a few loaves and fish. He's going to walk on water and heal a grown man who was born blind. He will even raise a man from the dead, a man who had been dead for four days. And beyond that, Jesus himself will be raised from the dead and do so many other works that the world itself would not be able to contain the books that could be written of all the amazing things that Jesus did. But when Jesus speaks here, In verse 20, of even greater works to come, he has even more than these things in mind, which brings us to the second truth, crucial truth that Jesus presents in order to explain how he and the Father work together in all things. Number two, let's word it this way, the Father honors the Son by giving all judgment to him. The father honors the son by giving all judgment to him. Observe what Jesus says in verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. To know what Jesus is referring to here, it's helpful to know that the verb raises and gives our present tense, speaking of what the Father is in the business of doing even right now at the present moment, making it clear that what Jesus is speaking of here definitely includes the Father's raising people from spiritual death and regenerating them to spiritual life as he saves them. And Jesus completes his thought in verse 21 by saying, For just as the Father raises the dead and is giving them life, even so the Son also is giving life to whom he wishes at the present time. Again, this is present. We've already seen the life-giving power of Jesus and the miracles that John has recorded thus far To the lame man whose limbs were practically dead, Jesus says, get up and walk. And the man's muscles become infused with life. So much so that this man could immediately walk again. To the father of the son who was dying in John 4, Jesus is able to speak a word of power and say to this dad, your son lives And the son recovers instantly from 18 miles away. 
To the woman at the well, Jesus promises her that he can give her living water through which she can live forever and have the thirst of her soul satisfied. This is the power of Jesus to give life in any way and on any level to whomever he chooses. In verse 22, Jesus explains why it is that he's able to give life to whomever he wishes. He says in verse 22, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Not some judgment, but all judgment the father has given to the son. Jesus' point here is that the father does not judge a single person with any judgment that is not mediated through his son, Jesus. And Jesus is also saying that any judgment that he, the son, ever renders on any matter or regarding any person, his judgment is always a perfect reflection of the judgment of the father. And that's why the father has given all judgment to the son, because he trusts his son And he knows that every judgment that his son will ever render in any matter, in any person's life, will always be a perfect match with what he, the father, would have wanted. As for the father's goal in giving all judgment to the son, why has he done this? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 23. So that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is a stunning statement by Jesus. The Old Testament teaches us that God alone is to be worshipped. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God declares that he will not share his glory with any other who is not God. Yet here is Jesus saying to his enemies... That the Father desires, look at the text again, that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. In other words, the Father desires that all would give the Son the same honor that they give to the Father. That's a crazy statement by Jesus. Absolutely audacious But it's the truth. To these religious leaders who are listening to Jesus, Jesus' words sound to them like arrogant words of blasphemy. But facts are facts. The Father truly loves the Son so much that he gives all judgment over to the Son for the purpose that all will honor the Son even as or in the same way that they will honor the Father. And as a result of this purpose of the Father, Jesus lays down a truth that is utterly inescapable. He says in verse 23, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is telling these leaders who hate him that the reason he is on earth right now is because the Father has sent him to earth to do and to speak the things that he is doing and speaking. 
So for these religious leaders to choose not to honor the son because of what he has said and done is to dishonor the father who sent Jesus and whom Jesus is imitating in all that he says and does. So just from what Jesus says thus far, you can infer that if what Jesus is saying is true, then your decision about what you will do with the Son of God is fraught with eternal significance. And you would be absolutely right in making that inference an inference that actually becomes explicit in the coming verses. And this leads us to the third truth that Jesus presents in order to explain how he and the Father are a package deal and how they work together in all things. Truth number three that Jesus speaks, I think we can sum up in this way, that a person's judgment from God is determined by his response to the Father and the Son. A person's judgment from God is determined by his response to the Father and his Son. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And notice how Jesus here in verse 24 joins the father and himself in this truly, truly statement. He says, he who hears my word, in other words, he who hearkens to my word, or he who gives obedient heed to my word and believes him who sent me. That's the Father. So whether a person is fully conscious of this or not, salvation always entails a person responding to both the Father and the Son. When a person is being converted to Christ, he's hearkening to the word of Christ, the Son of God, and he's believing the Father who sent him. The Father and the Son are so united in their essence and in their work that to hearken to the Son is to believe the Father. You cannot separate those two. According to what Jesus says here in verse 24, a person who hearkens to the word of Jesus and believes the Father who sent Jesus has three wonderful things that are true about them even right now. First of all, such a person has, present tense, eternal life. Jesus is not saying that such a person will one day gain eternal life, but that they are right now at the present moment in possession of this thing called eternal life. Secondly, Jesus says that such a person does not come into judgment. In other words, such a person is no longer under God's verdict of guilty right now. Condemnation 
under the law of God for their sins. And such a person doesn't have to worry about having to come into God's condemnation on a future day when they stand before God at the judgment. Those who refuse to hearken to the voice of Jesus and who refuse to believe the Father will fall under the condemning judgment of Almighty God. But those who hearken to the voice of Jesus never, ever, for time and eternity, need to be plagued by such a worry. Amen? Thirdly, Jesus says that the person who hearkens to his voice, the voice of the Son, and believes the Father, has passed out of death into life. In other words, such a person is no longer spiritually dead in their trespasses and in their sins. Like all who are outside of Christ are at this very moment. But such a person now has the life of God within him or her. And they can live that life in relationship with the Father and the Son. In a relationship which is the very essence of eternal life. Jesus continues in verse 25 with another emphatic statement that begins with truly, truly saying, listen to what he says in verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Some commentators suggest that Jesus is speaking about the future day of resurrection, and others suggest that he's speaking about God's work of regenerating people to eternal life in the here and now. Thankfully, I don't think we have to pick between the two options, because both, I think, are included in Jesus' language For one, Jesus is saying the hour is coming and now is, right now, when people are hearing the voice of the Son of God and those who are given ears to hear him such that they will hearken positively to him will live. This at least includes spiritual resurrection where people who believe in Jesus are spiritually made alive through the miracle of regeneration, which is why they could even believe in Jesus and hear his voice in the first place. And Jesus is assuring this audience of men who hate him that there are people, though they hate him and are rejecting him, there are people, even right now, Jesus is saying, who are hearkening to his voice and coming alive spiritually, even if these men he's talking to are not. And there will be many more in the weeks and years to come, and this will happen even more after Jesus' ascension, when people on the day of Pentecost and then throughout the uttermost regions of the earth, including many of us in this room 2,000 years later, have heard the voice of Jesus and have come alive his voice. And the same will be true in the coming day of resurrection when those who hear the voice of the Son of God 
will be raised from the dead and clothed with immortality and with glory forever. Why is this the case? That the dead who hear the voice of the Son of God will live? Why is it true that even during Jesus' public ministry, there will be spiritually dead people who will hear the voice of the Son of God and come to life? Listen to what Jesus says in verses 20. 6 and 27. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him, the Father gave him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he, the Son, is the Son of Man. Again, notice that the Father is the initiator of this action, not the Son. The Father has life in Himself to give. He's given it to the Son to have life in Himself to give to others. And it is the Father who has given to the Son authority to make judgments and to execute those judgments about who to give life to and who not to. And notice the rationale that Jesus gives for this. Why has the Father bestowed such prerogatives upon the Son. Look at the end of verse 27, because He is the Son of Man. That's why the Father has given me these prerogatives, Jesus is saying. If you read the other gospel accounts, you will observe that the title, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite way of referring to Himself in the gospels. In a passage like this, Jesus is clearly referring back to the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 to whom God is said to give dominion and power forever. In fact, listen to these words. Let me just read them to you from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him." His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amazing words there. And more amazingly, here in John 5, in our passage today, Jesus is saying, I am that Son of Man. And it is because I am that Son of Man that the Father has given to me, to have life in myself and to give to others that life and to have authority to judge and to execute that judgment. Now, I want to stop for just a moment and I want us to remember that Jesus is not preaching to a choir of believers here. He is speaking to his enemies who hate him and who want to kill him for presuming to act like God and then speak like God's equal back in verse 17. And now Jesus, in unpacking that offensive statement 
is making even more audacious claims about himself in relation to the Father, which is no doubt leaving these men beside themselves with fury. As the commentator William Barclay says, and I quote, for Jesus to speak like this was an act of the most extraordinary and unique courage. He must have known well that to make claims like this would sound like the sheerest blasphemy to the Orthodox Jewish leaders and was to court death. The man who listened to words like this had only two alternatives. He must either accept Jesus as the Son of God or hate Him as a blasphemer. There simply was no middle ground option for these men as to how they would respond to Jesus. In fact, it's obvious at this point that Jesus perceives that the men that he's talking to are stunned by the things that they're hearing him say. So listen to what Jesus says to these men whose mouths are hanging open in angry amazement. In verse 28, at the beginning of the verse, Jesus says, do not marvel. Literally, stop marveling at this, at the things that I'm saying. Sometimes marveling is good in the Bible, but in this case, the marveling of Jesus' audience was the unpleasant amazement of angry unbelief. And to his audience of offended unbelievers, Jesus says, stop being so amazed at what I am saying. And look at what he says next. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Wow. And these men are angry because Jesus used his voice to tell a man to get up and carry his sleeping bag on the Sabbath. To these leaders who are angry over that way that Jesus used his voice, Jesus is saying, on the great day of resurrection, it will be my voice that determines those who are raised to life and those who are raised to eternal condemnation. To some, I will say, get up and walk into eternal life. And to others, I will say, get up and walk into your eternal judgment. And Jesus is saying, absolutely Everyone, including you men who are listening to me right now, will obey my voice in that future day. All who are in the tombs will hear my voice and will come forth. The vibe here from Jesus is what I said to this lame man on the Sabbath day should be the least of your worries. What you ought to be worrying about is what I'm going to say to you on Resurrection Day. I will summon you, and I will call you to, my, to your eternal fate, and you will come forth in response to my voice, and you will go exactly where I tell you to go in that day. The only question is which fate will be yours. 
According to what Jesus has said earlier in verse 24, what will decide their fate is whether they hearken to the word of Jesus and trusted the Father who sent him. Yet here in verse 29, Jesus explains what will determine their fate a little bit differently, saying those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Fundamentally, the good deeds are the deeds of hearkening to the voice of Jesus and believing the Father who sent him. That's the work of God that pleases him. The evil deeds are the deeds of refusing to hearken to the words of Jesus and refusing to believe the Father who sent him. So here Jesus is saying, those who do the good deeds of believing in me, and then from the fountain of that belief, engage in deeds consistent with that belief, they will come forth in response to my voice and they will go to eternal life. Those who disbelieve and perform evil deeds consistent with their disbelief will experience a resurrection of judgment. And here in John 5, Jesus is saying that it is he who will judge and decide the fates of men and women on that day of resurrection. How will he exercise those judgments? Well, this brings us to the fourth and the final truth that Jesus presents in order to explain how he and the Father work together in all things. We can word it this way. The Son judges justly in accordance with his Father's will. The Son judges justly in accordance with his Father's will. At this point, you'll notice that Jesus stops speaking about the Son in the third person and now uses pronouns, the pronouns I, my, and me to make it abundantly clear that he is the Son whom he has been speaking about. And listen to what he says in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus ends how he began in verse 19, telling his audience of enemies that he can do nothing by himself or of his own initiative. And not only does he not do anything of his own initiative, but he's not even able to. It's simply not possible, and Jesus could never even bring himself to try. Jesus so loves the Father and wants to please the Father that he always seeks the Father's will in all things. Which is why Jesus says, as I hear, I judge. His point is, my Father speaks to me all the time about everything. And as I hear the Father speak to me and guide me, I judge in perfect accordance with the directions that my Father gives to me. In every judgment I make and in all that I do, 
I am acting in unison with my Father in heaven. That's what he's saying. Consequently, Jesus says, my judgment is just. In other words, my judgment is perfectly righteous in every way. My judgment is righteous in my Father's eyes and always righteous and just toward men because I always judge precisely how my Father desires me to judge. Why is this so? He says, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has been sent and commissioned by his Father. He always seeks to do his will. His ear is always tuned to his Father's voice. And the Father always speaks to him and shows him what his will is. And for this reason, Jesus' judgment is always perfectly righteous in every way. Jesus has more to say than what we have looked at this morning, but we're going to stop here for today. And I just want to ask you, The question, how do you respond to what Jesus says in these verses about himself? Some of us are so used to these truths about Jesus that we lose sight of how mind-blowing what he's really saying is. And we lose sight of how these words must have landed on the ears of his original audience of enemies who already wanted to kill him before he even said what he says in our passage today. If these enemies of Jesus were taking notes right now as Jesus is speaking in verses 19 through 30, Jesus has just handed them all they need to hear to put him to death, right? In fact, write down the reference, John 19, 7. The Jews are going to speak to Pilate and say, we have a law. And by that law, he, Jesus, ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. And yet Jesus is speaking with courage in these verses and he's dropping these truth bombs on this group of men and he's speaking these words for their benefit if they would only listen these men would have said that they believed in god and that they loved god the father yet they hated jesus and wanted to kill him And Jesus is saying to them in these words, there can be no such dichotomy between the Father and me because we are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. If you honor me, you honor the Father. If you dishonor me, you dishonor the Father. If you love what you see me doing, then you love what the Father is doing. If you don't like what I am doing and saying, then you hate the Father. Based on Jesus' language here, if you want a relationship with God, you cannot have that relationship with God, the Father, apart 
from Jesus Christ, which is why he later says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. As I listen to Jesus' words this morning, I can't help but marvel at how God has chosen to reveal himself 2,000 years ago. He reveals himself in a passage like this as a son who raves about his father and a father who raves about his son. The problem with you and me and our fallenness is that we have rebelled against God and we've tried to make our lives all about ourselves, seeking to live as Unitarian sovereigns over the kingdom of me. Yet God reveals himself to us in this passage as father and son who are very happily all about the other. The father giving all things to the son, wanting the son honored in everything, and the son letting the father take the lead and delighting to do his father's will in everything. In other words, God reveals himself to us in the form of a relationship between father and son that he wants to usher us into if we would believe in Christ, hearken to his voice and believe the father. And this is something we'll be learning more about in the coming chapters But as I said at the outset of the message this morning, these words that Jesus speaks in this passage are the most audacious words that any person has ever spoken prior to this moment. Think about what Jesus has claimed for himself, and don't try to write these down. I'm just going to rattle them off. The Father loves me in a special way and shows me everything he is doing. The Father will show me even greater things to do in the days to come. I give life to whomever I wish. The Father has placed all judgment into my hands. The Father desires that everyone honor me in the same way that they honor the Father. Anyone who hearkens to my words has eternal life. It will be my voice that calls forth the dead. I am the Son of Man of Daniel 7, to whom God will give all dominion over all. It will be my voice that summons all the righteous and the wicked dead and determines their eternal fate. And my judgments are and always will be perfectly righteous and just. If what Jesus says in these verses is not true, then Jesus is a raving, egomaniac, lunatic who is full of himself and unworthy to be followed in any way. If what he says in these verses is true, then we must all bow before him and worship him as God, right? The question, though, is how will you respond to Jesus this morning as he has spoken these truth bombs 
to you? What decision will you come to about him? C.S. Lewis speaks about this dilemma of how to respond to Jesus, which is often called a trilemma. And he says these words, let me read them to you. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus when they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let not us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, unquote. As for the conclusion that C.S. Lewis himself arrived at as he contemplated these options, he goes on to say this, quote, Now it seems to me obvious that Jesus was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's the decision that C.S. Lewis arrived at. As for these religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to this morning, many of them are going to write Jesus off as a demon-possessed blasphemer. And within a couple years' time, they're going to kill him for blasphemy. That's what they think of his words that he has spoken in our passage today. But what about you? What decision will you make about Jesus? Will you hearken to the voice of Jesus? Will you repent of your unbelief and believe the Father who sent him to do all that Jesus said and did? Will you embrace Jesus as the Son of God that he is, or will you write him off as a madman or a demon or perhaps both? Your eternal destiny hinges on what you will do with Jesus, for what you do with Jesus will determine what he will do with you on the day of resurrection. We should appreciate 
as we wrap up this morning, that this one whom the Father gave to have life within himself was willing to surrender up that life on the cross for the salvation of sinners. This one who was given all rights to judge by the Father allowed himself to come under the judgment of God at the cross. But the Father raised Jesus from the dead so that Jesus can now give life to all who believe in him and deliver them who believe in him from his judgment that he will render in a future day to those who do not believe in him. If you are here this morning and you would like to be freed from the guilt of your sins and from the power of your sins, if you long to be free from the slavery of the sins that bind you, hearken to the voice of Jesus this morning. Believe the Father who sent Jesus. Fall before Jesus in worship of him. And if you are a believer this morning, the only appropriate response for all of us who know him is to fall before this Son of Man, Son of God, and to consecrate ourselves to him, for he alone is worthy of our full devotion. Amen? These are the only appropriate responses to one who is truly who he says he is in the verses we've looked at today. So let's pray and ask God to help us to respond appropriately to him. Lord Jesus, it is so obvious in this passage that you didn't just come to earth to be a pretty good guy and say nice platitudes. You are God. And Father, you sent the Lord Jesus into this world to confront us with the truth about you that we needed to be confronted with and to crash into our kingdoms of me and to knock us from the thrones upon which we attempt to sit as we rule, seek to rule over our own little skull-sized kingdoms that are no bigger than our own egos and to usher us then into something that is far grander than we would have ever imagined possible. You didn't come to just fit inside of our paradigms, but you came to bust those paradigms and to say to us, I am the paradigm. You didn't come as new wine to be put into old wineskins, for you would burst those asunder. You didn't come to fit into 
our system. You are the system. And we are treated in these verses to an incredibly exalted view of you, Lord Jesus. And we get to listen in on this conversation as you're speaking to men who hate you and want to kill you and many of whom will participate in your coming crucifixion, but you speak to them the truth about who you are and you don't mince words, even when you know that what you're about to say is going to make them even matter. And if you were faithful to speak with such truth about yourself at such a high cost, help us as your people to speak the truth about you to others. Though when we do so, others may hate us as much as they hate you. But we can have the courage to do this, Lord, knowing of your sovereign greatness and that you are with us always. And may we be swallowed in the sea of your greatness, Lord, and swimming in that sea have the courage that we need to represent you to our world today. If there's any here this morning, Lord, that have never responded to you, this is a, there's a heaviness to this message. We're dealing with grand themes that that are, that are too great to even fully comprehend. But you have shown us your greatness and glory, Lord, and I pray that the glory of your person and the beauty of your person would cause many in this room who have not believed in you to cry out to you and to believe in you as their Lord and Savior today. Have your way with all of us, Lord, and leave us forever marked by these words that we have heard you speak to us this morning. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.